0: welcome to an all-new episode of criminal discourse podcast I'm your host Trish and I'm a solo again with you this week before we get started I want to take a moment and thank some listeners we have from Lake Stevens Washington I don't know who you are we just know general location of listeners so those listeners around Lake Stevens Washington thank you so much for taking the time to listen so I'm gonna jump into this right away and in keeping with our Halloween theme episodes today's Halloween tale deals with the concept of boogeymen that specter in the night that have been around for decades. Though Halloween stories are often urban legends told to scare little kids, there may be some truth in the shadowy figures that stalk the night looking for innocent victims to prey upon, and this is one such story. Now before I dive into the details, full disclosure... This episode deals with the subject of rape. If this subject is too upsetting or triggering to you, please don't continue to listen. The purpose of our podcast is to talk about true crime, which serial rapes are part of, but not to upset anybody who's been a victim of rape. So please stop this episode, perhaps listen to one of our past episodes, or even check out a new podcast. Then you can come back next Monday for another new episode. So our story begins in Prince George County, Maryland. And this county borders the eastern edge of Washington, D.C. and is part of the Washington, D.C. metro area. It is named after Prince George of Denmark, husband of Princess Anne of England. On March 16, 2010, an article was published in the Washington Post entitled, After 13 Years, Police Still Hunting for the East Coast Rapist. This is the opening paragraphs from that article written by Josh White and Maria Gold. And I want to give them credit because I am going to read verbatim. But it explains so well the nuances of this case. So I just want to read the first few sentences. Quote, he lurks at gas stations and pay phones and bus stops, blending in so well that people don't notice him at first. He has a smooth, deep voice. He is black. He smokes and he is right-handed. He is in his early to mid-30s, is fit stands about six feet tall, likes wearing camouflage clothes and black hats, and once had a badly chipped tooth. The man studies women carefully. He watches them leave for work and walk home from the mall. He notices whether they lock their windows and doors. He knows when most are vulnerable and when they are home alone with their children. He stalks them in neighborhoods he knows well. Then he rapes them and vanishes. The East Coast rapist had been attacking and raping women for over 13 years by 2010, and police had been able to collect a lot of identifying information on him, but just not who he exactly was. It would take some old-fashioned detective work combined with updated technology to track this nefarious predator. On March 19, 1997, nearing midnight along the Marlboro Pike in Forestville, Maryland, A 25-year-old woman is walking alone when a man on a bike wearing a ski mask approaches her. He strikes up a conversation before pulling out a gun, forcing her off the road, and he rapes the young woman. The woman didn't get a look at her attacker. Not a really good look, but she did notice that one of his teeth was either chipped or broken off. And he wore what looked like a green camouflage coat, and he appeared to be in his late teens to early 20s. This attack would provide investigators with DNA evidence that would be held in a database for unsolved crimes. Unfortunately, this young woman was not the first or last victim in Prince George's County. Several more attacks would take place into the spring of 1997, leading police to believe that he was from the area, as victims had seen him in the area before their attacks. Police sounded the alarm and warned area women to be on guard. Now, the media coverage nicknamed him the bicycle-riding rapist, and investigators at the time believed that the rapist might have seen the media coverage and decided to change his MO. He stopped using his bicycle and gun and switched to walking and a knife. Investigators realized that by the summer of 1999, the serial rapist had expanded his hunting grounds. This time, he was branching out into the Fairfax's Route 1 corridor. He would be seen lurking at gas stations and bus stops during the night, no one really ever getting a good look at him. One night, a woman was walking back from having picked up some groceries, and a man came up behind her, grabbed her, took her off the street behind a somewhat isolated building. He took off only one of her shoes and pulled only one of her legs out of her pants, and this made it much more difficult for the victim to escape. He then raped her and took off into the night. Now, he would continue to use this technique of only taking off one shoe and one pant leg several more times. By November 2000, the man once again changed his hunting grounds, this time to roadways that led into apartment and townhouse communities. Investigators believe that the rapists could more easily watch women as they came and went and to choose the best time to attack them. One such attack was on a 35-year-old woman who had just gotten off a bus near her new townhome community. The rapist approached her, fitting to be lost. He then put her in a headlock and led her to a nearby wooded area while brandishing a knife. Now, what this rapist didn't know was that this victim was in the military and had hand-to-hand combat training. She was able to wrestle the six-inch serrated knife away from him. And when she tried to use that knife against him, he just kind of put up his hands and said, quote, just joking, and took off running. This knife was to be linked to the man who had become known as the East Coast Rapist. DNA from his skin cells had been obtained from the knife and matched previous victims. Now, this is the only known item that the East Coast Rapist had left behind at any of the crime scenes to this point. In May 2001, in Leesburg, Virginia, the East Coast rapist would strike once again, this time in an apartment complex where he grabbed a woman from behind, wrapping his arms around her. Now, this woman thought at first it was her husband and kind of laughed it off, but when she looked down, she saw the arms didn't belong to her husband. The man told her to shut up or that he would kill her, telling her he had a knife. Now, the 41-year-old woman had been in the process of moving out of her apartment, so she was walking back and forth from the apartment to her car. And around 5 p.m., she had sent her son off to take his weekly taekwondo lesson while she finished up moving. And while she had been down at her car on one of her various trips, the rapist had taken the opportunity to enter the nearly empty apartment. So when she returned into the apartment, not knowing he had slipped in there, that's when he grabbed her from behind and he pushed her onto the bedroom floor what the victim saw was not a knife though, but an orange handled Phillips head screwdriver. So this was a bit of a change in his attack at this point as he used shoelaces that he had brought with him and tied her hands over her head. Now the shoelace, when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, that has shades of the East Area Rapist, aka the Golden State Killer. He did the same thing to his rape victims bringing his own shoelaces. The rapist then covered the victim's face with her own t-shirt. Now while being raped, the victim had tried to notify her downstairs neighbor by banging her foot on the floor. She remembered that on occasions when she had been running on her treadmill, the downstairs neighbor would complain of the noise. But unfortunately, this time, there were no complaints. The victim didn't give up, though, and trying to get her rapist to stop. She told him she was having trouble breathing. But once he removed the shirt from her face, he threatened her again, telling her not to call the cops because he lived right across the hall. Now, as the rapist had done on previous occasions, he also complimented his victims, telling her that she was, quote, fine, unquote. And I am think he meant like fine looking. Once the attack was over, the East Coast rapist gathered up the victim's clothing, her shoes and cell phone, along with the shoelaces and screwdriver that he had brought along with him. And he took off, leaving the victim terrified and naked. Now, the victim didn't stay down long. She ran to a nearby window yelling for neighbors to call 911. And they did. And when police arrived, they found the victim in the only thing she could find in her apartment, Christmas wrapping paper. Now, several days after Christmas 2001, this is seven months later, a 29-year-old woman was running late for work. She quickly got dressed and she rushed to the nearby bus stop in Alexandria, Virginia. Now, while she waited, she noticed a man smoking a cigarette standing along the tree line. She thought he was just being polite and standing away from her while he smoked. Now, once he finished, he approached her asking her when the next bus was to arrive. But then he told her he had a weapon and he forced her to go with him. She was able to see what she thought was a knife in his pocket. He then told her that he thought she worked a lot. And he was right, because she worked two jobs to support her four young children. At one point, the man placed the tip of the knife to the side of her neck, forcing her down into some mulch beside a nearby apartment building. Once again, he pulled off only one shoe and one pant leg. While he raped the woman, she prayed out loud, which only seemed to anger him, and he stopped momentarily, but then he soon carried on with his attack telling her it felt too good to stop. Once it was over, the woman counted backwards from a 100, but by the time she got to 30, she was up and running and running back to her place. She just wanted to shower, but her husband was home, and fortunately, he convinced her, don't shower, we need to call the police. And they did. And police were able to recover DNA that they linked to the East Coast rapist. Now, in August, the East Coast rapist would strike again, this time becoming bolder in his approach and attacks. He had chosen two young victims to go after at the same time. Two teenage girls were walking home from the Marlow Heights shopping center near the Washington Beltway when a man had pulled a gun on them. He forced them into a nearby wooded area where he raped both young women. Now, while investigators were actively trying to find the man responsible for these multiple attacks in Fairfax, Virginia area, there had been no new attacks really in over a four-year period. So the police didn't know if the East Coast rapists had been doing jail time, or were they serving in the military and they were stationed elsewhere, or did the rapist decide to lie low or even stop on his own? But that didn't seem to be the case. In November 2006, in Cranston, Rhode Island, where We're about 400 miles away from Virginia. An 11-year-old girl is home in her living room doing her homework when she sees a man trying to unlock the sliding glass door. Now, the man is able to get the door slightly open, and the girl begins to scream, and the family dog, a great Black Dane, begins to bark. And this seems to startle the man, and he takes off. Now, at the same time, the young girl's mom would tell police that she had just gotten home from work and perhaps thought the man was thinking she was alone. Police would find three of semen on the outside of the sliding glass door. So I don't think he was perhaps looking at the mom. I think maybe perhaps he was looking at the young daughter. And the DNA would match rapes in Maryland and Virginia. The East Coast rapist was on the move. At 1 a.m. on January tenth, two 2007, around midnight, a 27-year-old woman slept in her New Haven, Connecticut bedroom with her 11-month-old son sleeping soundly in the crib beside her bed. A dark figure would appear in her doorway telling her not to scream out and threaten to harm her son if she didn't do what he wanted. This man wore dark clothing and had on a black mask or hoodie that concealed his face. The man got on top of the frightened young woman and put a pillow over her face. He then proceeded to rape her while he told her, you really shouldn't have left your windows open for him to get in. After the man finished, he fled from the scene. Now, investigators once again felt that he had purposely chosen this apartment complex as it was not easy to find being tucked away off the roadway into a residential area. There would be two more attacks on women in their homes where the assailant used the threat of harming their children to get them to comply. But he would not leave behind DNA evidence in these cases as he had begun to use a condom. So the East Coast rapist had a task force in place once the rapes, especially in Maryland and Virginia, seemed to escalate. So this task force, again, was working to try to find out who this man was, looking at all this various evidence, but again, with not a suspect. Halloween 2009, three teenage girls, two were 17, one was 16, had been out trick-or-treating in the Woodbridge area of Virginia when a man would come up behind them and ordered them by gunpoint down a steep embankment into a wooded ravine. The girls had been walking by the Dale City Shopping Center and just a few blocks from their home when the man approached them. At first, he asked them if they had a lighter and then threatened them with the gun and asked them if they had any money. Now, they would say that the man wore a black ski mask and had used the gun to direct the girls where he wanted them to go. Now, once down into the ravine, he said to them through clenched teeth to lie down side by side on their stomachs facing away from him. Again, the clenched teeth thing gave me shade of the East Area Rapist, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer, a.k.a. Joseph D'Angelo, because he did the same thing with his victims. He would talk through clenched teeth. Now, all three girls held hands, each afraid to try to run, fearing their assailant would shoot them. The 16-year-old girl was able to dim her cell phone, though. And God love teenagers, they don't even have to look at their phone when they text. So she was able to send a text to her mom and several friends. And this went out about 9.05 p.m., telling them that a man was raping one of her friends in the woods behind the CVS and to call 911. Now, at one point, I read an article that said she was able even to call her mother and then 911 herself repeatedly asking for help before her call was dropped. Now, her mom getting this message, she took off running because she knew where her daughter was describing. And as her mom was running from one end, the police were coming from the other end. And when the rapist heard the lights and sirens, he suddenly stopped. He told the girls to stay down, to not move. And all they heard was him running away. Now, investigators felt that these latest attacks were also done by the East Coast rapist, as it had several of the trademarks he had used in his previous attacks. So again, the police knew quite a lot about the East Coast rapist, how he operated, just not who he was. They knew he had been in Prince George's County, Maryland, in Fairfax, Virginia, up to New Haven, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. DNA, to this point, had connected the East Coast rapist to 12 rapes but investigators believed he could be tied to more than 17. Investigators also felt that this man was constantly searching for his next victim, especially in areas where he was comfortable in, such as where he lived and worked. His M.O. was to attack women in secluded areas of neighborhoods that may even see a lot of traffic, so they knew that he had planned this out and had also planned escape routes in advance. Now, with some of the attacks, it appeared that along with stalking, the East Coast rapist added being a peeping Tom to his repertoire. This told investigators that he was taking note of women's homes and apartments looking at the traffic in the area where they lived and how often they locked their windows and doors. He would confront his victims in dark areas where his victims felt comfortable in, such as their own neighborhoods or even their homes. His methods of attack would vary from using a gun, a knife, a broken bottle, and even a screwdriver. And he may approach his victims by striking up a, you know, an innocuous conversation with them, or even making a startling command. While raping his victims, he would often go from complimenting them to threatening to kill them. So at this point, he had only ever threatened to kill, but never followed through with any of those threats. His DNA did not match any known criminals in their databases. Investigators felt that the East Coast rapist knew this, and that is the reason that he failed to wear a condom for most of his rapes. Now, one article I read said at one point they were looking into, I think it was a police force for the Virginia rapes, was looking into familial DNA using that new crime-solving technique, but I never found anything that said they did that. Now, besides attacking at night, the rapist was very good at hiding his face from his victims, again, by using some sort of covering or holding objects over his victims faces to obstruct their view he would leave very little evidence behind besides his dna and his victims would describe him as a black male with a medium complexion with a deep voice and a medium build but that's all they had they knew these little pieces of the puzzle just not that final piece of who he was Now, stranger rapes are some of the hardest sexual assaults to solve since there is no real known connection to the victims, and this is purposely done by the predator. Now, investigators while combing through DNA databases were also looking into the possibility that the East Coast rapist could work as perhaps a long-haul truck driver, be a member of the military, or some type of utility installer. Someone who would blend in and be gone for long periods of time with no one becoming suspicious. They were busy tracking down all of these trains of thought, like, okay, you look at the long haul, you look at the military, you look at the utility installer, and still they weren't any closer. But on Friday, March 11th, 2011, on Pendleton Street in New Haven, Connecticut, the U.S. Marshals Service had been keeping an eye on a resident that lived there based upon a tip that had come in from the digital billboards that they had put up asking for information on the East Coast rapist. Now, there was an, also a website put out by the task force entitled East Coast rapist.com. I did look that up. It had merchandise on it, so I don't think it's used for what its original purpose was for. Investigators got 44,000 hits in the first 12 hours of the billboards going up. And these billboards would put out the information that they knew and also various sketches that had been taken over the years. And these billboards were put up in Connecticut, Rhode Island, maryland and virginia where the east coast rapists had attacked they were also put up in new york state new jersey and delaware so the resident that the marshal service and the investigators were looking into was 39 year old aaron h thomas an unemployed truck driver who had been living in the New Haven area since 2005. Now, investigators had been following Thomas for a few days. They even followed him to the Superior Courthouse for a hearing he had on a previous larceny charge. So the marshals observed Thomas smoking a cigarette, which he discarded outside the courthouse. And you can only guess what happened next. Investigators carefully collected the butt and submitted it immediately for DNA testing. Now, after confirming the DNA belonged to the man who had been known as the East Coast Rapist, Thomas was taken into custody by the U.S. Marshall Service. Now, upon his arrest, he told authorities that, well, you have the right man. And why didn't you pick me up sooner? Notifying other jurisdictions of Thomas' arrest, Prince Williams County in Virginia had an arrest warrant filed that night for him. And hours after Thomas had been arrested, that he was processed, taken to jail, he tried to hang himself in his jail cell. And fortunately, he was not successful. So who is Aaron H. Thomas? I tried to find some information out on him. There was not much that I came across. What we do know, though, is... Thomas's father was a high-ranking member of the Washington, D.C. Police Department, though he didn't really always act like an upstanding citizen at home. Aaron would suffer years of physical abuse at his father's hands also got in trouble at a young age for some pretty serious offenses, or at least some that should have put up some major red flags for his parents. One, he was known for torturing animals in his neighborhood, and at another time, he gave his brother, without his brother's knowledge, a sleeping pill, just to see what would happen. In high school, Thomas would end up spending approximately three years in a treatment center, which really is a long time. I mean, usually with insurances and everything, you're not usually sent away for more than 30 days. If you're on probation, maybe a six to nine at most a year, but three years, that was an awful lot. And at one point when Thomas was older, his father did commit suicide. Now, after high school, Thomas had been kicked out of his home and had ended up homeless living on the streets he says that at this point that this experience of being kicked out and being homeless had created something in him that he could not control and he gave in to his quote animalistic urges unquote and at this time he was about 19 20 years old at the time he committed his first rape now he would claim after his arrest that he didn't feel his attacks were violent and all he did was find a woman and scare her into giving him sex. Now, the definition of rape is non-consensual sex, so yeah, it is rape, and it is violent. He admitted to going out and scouting locations that would be hidden enough to carry out his crimes. He also claimed that once he started raping women, that it just felt too good to stop. And he admitted he was able to go periods of time between raping women, especially when his life got back on track i.e. when he was holding a job or having a steady place to live or being even in a relationship. So the state of Connecticut where he was arrested, agreed to transfer Thomas back to the state of Virginia and to hold off on prosecuting their case as long as Virginia was able to obtain a lengthy criminal sentence for him. He faced six counts of rape in Virginia. So in March 2013, Thomas was sentenced to two life sentences after pleading guilty for the attack that had taken place in Leesburg, Virginia, while the young woman had been moving out of her apartment and he received a maximum sentence for his crime. One life term for rape, one life term for the abduction. Now, this is an addition to the three life sentences he received for the Halloween 2009 rapes on the girls from Prince William County. He pleaded guilty in November 2012 to those rapes. So the defense initially tried to say Thomas was just too incompetent to stand trial. However, the court-ordered evaluation showed that Thomas was only playing at being insane. When questioned by investigators about the Halloween rapes after his arrest, Thomas said that he saw the girls, got the urge, and took them into the woods. The reason he only raped two of the girls, and not all three, was he felt that the 16-year-old was too tiny. Now, a psychologist would testify during the sentencing hearing diagnosing Thomas as a sexual deviant, which according to the Wiley Online Library refers to behaviors where individuals seek erotic gratification through means that are considered odd, different, or unacceptable to most. Thomas has admitted over the years that he purposely changed his appearance to avoid looking like the sketches that have been released by the task force. He would also watch for any coverage on the rapes he committed. And that is one of the reasons he stopped raping women in Prince William County for fear of being caught. And finally, he claimed that he was glad he got caught and he needed to be punished, but he only saw himself as being mm, somewhat of a predator. No, no, we're going to agree to disagree there, Thomas. You're you're a predator. You're not somewhat of a predator. You're a predator. Now, if you or someone you know has been a victim of rape, please reach out for help. The act itself is traumatizing, and the aftermath and recovery can be very daunting. So please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. At 1 800 656 4673. It is confidential and free. You can also go to their website. A link is under the resource section of our show notes, and that is rain, R-A-I-N-N.org. All right, everyone, that is the episode of The East Coast Rapist, who is currently serving out many life sentences in jail and will most likely die behind bars. So thank you all for listening to us. If you'd like to look at our show notes, you can go to our website. It is criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We also have a contact page on there. So if you have something you'd like to ask us or something you'd like to say or even case suggestions, you can reach out to us through that form. We also have a Facebook page by the same name and we have an Instagram page at criminal pod and a YouTube channel. So you can check out us. You can check us out on any of those platforms. And talking about platforms, we are on all the streaming services, I think, at this point. So if you could, if you like what you hear, give us a review. If you could give us five stars, that would be even better. So as always, if you see something, say something, you might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime, like whatever that tip was that came into the task force that put them in the direction of Aaron H. Thomas. So we're still going through this pandemic. Like you, I have pandemic fatigue. I can't wait for a vaccine. But until then, we need to look out for one another. We need to stay safe. But we also need to take care of one another and be kind. So until next time, guys, bye.